Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to Dialed In. I'm Tom Brenneman. We thank, as always, the Believe Network for hosting our podcast each and every week. And we especially thank our producer-engineer, Dave Armbruster, for all his outstanding work. Um, look, we've had a lot of giants on this show already, and we're only about, like, three months old. Uh, you know, we've talked about some of the names, Bob Costas, Joe Buck, Troy Aikman. Uh, last week, Eric Davis, uh, Pete Rose, a two-part series a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this week is a, a guy who, like Pete Rose, uh, back in the 70s and early 80s, um, late 60s for that matter, 70s and early 80s, uh, was truly one of the great stars in American sports. He's considered to be the greatest catcher in the history of Major League Baseball, uh, both offensively, defensively. Uh, phenomenal talent. Came to the big leagues when he was only 19 years old. I'm talking about Johnny Bench. He will join us coming up next. You're dialed in. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details. Or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Johnny Lee Bench was born in December of 1947 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, to parents Katie and Theodore Bench. His father was an Army veteran and served at Fort Still. He grew up in Binger, Oklahoma, where he starred in both baseball and basketball and was his class valedictorian. As a 17-year-old, Bench was selected 36th overall by the Cincinnati Reds in the second round of the 1965 amateur draft. He was in the major leagues at 19. In 1968, he was a National League's Rookie of the Year, the first time a catcher had ever won that award. He also won the Gold Glove, which was the first time that award was won by a rookie. Two years later, he became the youngest player to win the National League's Most Valuable Player Award. He had 45 home runs, knocked in 148 runs while leading the Reds to the World Series. Two years later, 1972, he did it again. His second MVP award. One of his most dramatic home runs was his ninth inning opposite field shot in a decisive Game 5, which tied the score, a game the Reds would go on to win and return to the World Series. In 75 and 76, Bench led the Big Red Machine to -to back-to-back World Series titles winning the Most Valuable Player Award in the four-game sweep of the New York Yankees in 1976. In his career, Johnny Bench won 10 gold gloves, was a National League All-Star 14 times. He retired as the career home run leader for catchers and still holds a major league record for most grand slams by a catcher with 10. Bench is also a winner of the Lou Gehrig Award, the Babe Ruth Award, and the Hutch Award. He was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1989, his first year of eligibility, and got 96% of the ballots, the third highest of all time. He's the father of three boys, Bobby, Justin, and Joshua. Johnny Bench, our guest this week. All right, JB, of all of the things that I just mentioned, and that was a rather lengthy intro, but you've earned it, what did I miss, or what are you most proud of that I missed? Uh, Valedictorian. 
of my graduating class. How many kids were in that graduating class in Binger, Oklahoma? Well, let's don't have you don't have to say that, Tommy. I mean, there's <laughs> 21, but I mean, it was, it was kind of a deal. You know, it was. Uh, I, I guess you know all those things. Uh, I guess the I had uh, the things that happened that still allowed me to play, and the the car wreck in 19, you know, 66. You know, drunk driver were all side of the four lane, which uh, I survived. Uh, the doctor at the hospital said he doesn't have any idea how I survived. I had the biggest bones he'd ever seen in his life. He said nobody else would walk out of here. And then uh, right after the second MVP, uh, four days after I turned 25, I had lung surgery, mm-hmm. which they removed a spot out from my lung. So uh, I'm very pleased with my career. I think it could have been better and would have been better. But uh, I think the, the you know, the real thing that I enjoyed the most was the, the the big red machine itself and and the players themselves and the respect, I think, that we've gained. I still run into people across the country who say, I was a Mets fan, I was a Dodger fan, I was Philly fan, but we, boy, we respected you guys. And it's true. They, they really do. And so I think that's the thing I'm most proudest of. And, uh, of course, you know, I walked away uh, uh, when it was time. Um, and I knew it was time. So I, I've gotten on with my life. I've had uh, great success on a lot of things in, the, in my motivational speaking. I'm, and, and more importantly, now my job is raising, uh, mm-hmm. raising these two young boys at 11 and 15. We're going to get into all those topics as we move forward here. I want to go back to Johnny growing up in Oklahoma. Uh, Binger, Oklahoma, when you were growing up there, if I'm not mistaken, populations right around five, 600. What was life like in the bench house day to day? Well, at six years old, I was out pulling cotton. Uh, my two older brothers and uh, neighbors across the street, we all loaded up in the car and we would go, we would go pull cotton. And uh, that, of course, that was on the, in the fall. But during the summer months, we would be out chopping cotton. It's called chopping cottons and peanuts where in the rows of these, you would actually uh, chop out the weeds as you went down and some of these some of these uh, roads are a quarter mile long, so you were, you know, you were walking uh, four or five blocks, six blocks, if you can imagine chopping cotton that far. Man, and uh, so I, uh, and then I mowed the lawn. So I had the paper route, um, and uh, I hit every rock out of the driveway. I played ten can with my older brothers, a game that we invented with uh, an old uh, evaporated milk can that you would. Uh, you would punch the holes in, you'd hit a broken bat, have a cracked bat from the half a bat, and you'd hit it so far. And then I think that's how I learned to hit the breaking ball and knuckleballs or whatever <laughs> it was. But uh, And that point, uh, as I grew, I, you know, it was baseball season, and then it was basketball season, and then, of course, it was harvest season, meaning that mm-hmm. when the crops were ready to to uh, harvest, then we would, uh, I would be... Uh, out pulling cotton, combining peanuts. Later on, I drove the gas truck for my dad and delivered propane through to the farms and to the homes. Um, but it was always, you know, I was going to be a major league baseball player. And that's all I had in my mind. And we played home run derby. You know, just a kid's dream. Like a lot of uh, a lot of kids we see today that still have that dream. And, you know, the, the numbers are incredible. One in every 500,000 kids that ever played Little League ever signed a contract in my day. Only 7% of those made it. So uh, that never was in my mind, although I think that's why education was important to me and and uh, why I figured if I didn't make it, I, I would at least have something to fall back on. You're drafted by the Reds when you're 17 in 1965. You know, uh, for a lot of people listening to this show today, they, they can't understand um, what life was like in regard to Major League Baseball back in those days. I mean, in Oklahoma – in Cincinnati, in New York, it didn't matter which town you grew up in. There weren't games on every night of the week. Uh, major league teams were lucky to have 30, 40 games a year on television. In Oklahoma, you didn't have a major league team. You did have a minor league teams. But were you following major league baseball? You played baseball, but were you really following the game? Well, Mickey Mantle was my idol. Everybody knew Mickey Mantle. And, you know, we, we got the game of the week every uh, every Saturday. My dad and I would go down to Helms Grocery and we'd get a half gallon Neapolitan ice cream and uh, we'd come back and fill up our bowls and we would watch it because you know dad serving in the army for eight years two hitches his dream was to be a major league catcher and uh, 
so he still lived that dream. And uh, we, you know, he played a little sandlot. We'd go to the games and watch him. And uh, we would sit there and enjoy it. But, and then we got a paper maybe once a week. Uh, I wasn't allowed to stay up to see Ross Porter uh, do the sports and catch up on on what was going on. So it was just living in my mind, all those things. And, you know, when we played 10-can, Dean was Dean or William, my oldest brother, or my middle brother, we were, we would be the lineup of the Yankees, and mm-hmm. Dean would be the lineup of the Dodgers, and we would bat through the lineup, and we played workup, and it was just, you know, a, a kid's life, and didn't have travel ball, never went to a camp, never did a bunch of stuff. So I guess when you think about, you know, coming out of Oklahoma in the second round and being, uh, I think there was a scout named Billy Caps that was the Cub scout and uh, absolutely loved me. He was heartbroken when I wasn't drafted. Now, Tommy, I think if you, if you think about it, had I been drafted by the Cubs, you know, I got to the major leagues when I was 19, but, you know, they had a, a catch in Randy Hundley. Sure. So I might have been a long time stuck in the minor leagues. You never know what would have happened. So when I was drafted by the Reds, it was like, well, the Yankees beat them in five games in 1961. That's about all I knew about them, except they had sleeveless uniforms. And But it was an opportunity. That's all I ever asked. In 1968, your first full season, you win the Rookie of the Year. I mentioned earlier, first catcher to ever do that. You also win the Gold Glove as a 19-year-old. Actually, you turned 20 by then. And, and, and is there any way, Johnny, to describe this kid from Oklahoma, you finally get to the big leagues, this dream, you'd already survived the car wreck, you had been through a lot in a short amount of time, and now you get to the big leagues, and you're the best first-year player in the major leagues barely out of your teenage years. Well, I had broke my thumb in, uh, in the, in Buffalo. And then after coming up in 1967, at the end of the year, uh, Dave Bristol put me immediately into the lineup. And, uh, it was just by faith that I was able to be a rookie the next year because I was started the game. I only needed like two of bats to disqualify myself as a rookie. And uh, I tried to pick off a guy, I think it was Glenn Beckert or Don Kessinger at first base. And I swung out and did it. And and uh, whoever was batting foul tipped it and hit my thumb and it burst open and split it wide open. Now, this is twice in two years that I've got this thumb injury. And I said, this is stupid. Uh, I'm going to the one, the hinge glove. I'm going to become a one-handed catcher. Mm-hmm. So going to spring training, everybody assumed I was going to be the opening day catcher, but Don Pavletic and really won the job. And Dave Bristol was trying to prove a point that, you know, somebody's got to earn the job. So Don had a wonderful spring training. And I said, I was on the bench and uh, Don pulled a hamstring in the fifth game. And I went in and I caught 154 of the next 158 games. Wow. And uh, 52 days in a row without a day off. So, Needless to say, after the car wreck and everything else, I was the last one off the plane, even at 20 years old. <laughs> uh, I was beat up pretty good. I, my back, would I had to straighten up and let it catch up. And uh, it was on the lineup. We have a young kid that was a catcher and doing a great job, Stevenson, and I saw him down here in the, in the Florida State League, and I said, son, don't let them take you out of the lineup. If you're out of the lineup, you say, I'm playing. I don't care how hurt you are because you can contribute and you got to learn to play hurt. But um, yeah, I mean, catching 154 games and, and being the one-handed catcher and learning the transfer, it all paid off. I mean, I loved to throw. I wasn't afraid to throw. I was proud of my arm. I, you know, I made these, you know, these kid statements. I can throw out any man alive. And, uh, and it was always that kind of challenge. That's what I loved about it was, you know, as a catcher, you have four ways of having a great game. The first the first and most important is calling a game mm-hmm. for your pitcher. The second is throwing out runners. The third is blocking home plate. And the fourth is you can get hits. So if I called a great game and I got a pitcher who didn't really have the best stuff or didn't match up as well and we got a win out of it, that's all that really mattered. And it really was that important. Well, that, that, that leads me, Johnny, uh, to, the, to, to my next thought here. In, you know, in 70 and 72, 
two years out of three, you're the National League's most valuable player. I mean, you're 25 years old, and you're considered by many to be the best player in the game, best all-around player in the game. But your team in those two years loses in the World Series to Baltimore in 70, Oakland in 72. Was it hard to enjoy the individual achievements when your team's ultimate goal, and you've always been a team-first guy, uh, did not reach the pinnacle of winning the whole thing? Well, I mean, we were becoming the Buffalo Bills. I mean, we were the ones that couldn't get it done. Uh, you know, it was like, uh, yeah, what was what were we missing? And you know, we had uh, we had pitching. We had Jim Maloney and Jim Merritt won twenty games. We had some things that were going for us that we, you know, that were a deal. But you know, when uh, you know Morgan came in, we added a couple more key pieces and Geronimo and. And then Ken Griffey and then George Foster came along. And, uh, you know, it, it was, <laughs> you know, we are the big red machine. We can trample people. 1970, well, we won 70 out of our first 100 games. Um, and everybody was ready to just say, let's it. And then Wayne Simpson hurt his arm. Uh, we went to the Orioles, the uh, play of the Orioles. They had five, four 20 game winners. It was, you know, uh, uh, a situation where our our number, our, I think Tony Cloninger started a game. We had guys that we just didn't have because we were 32 and 30 after the pitching went went south, mm-hmm. and it was very disappointing. The you know in '72 we had misjudged fly balls uh, that we go seven innings. I can still remember Hal McRae, bases loaded, hitting a ball to the wall, turned out to be a sacrifice fly. And Hal came back to the dugout with tears in his eyes because he knew the the importance of that 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 hit, and that we were going to you know that would have been a grand slam that would have been off the wall that's a clear bases clearing we win the World Series, mm-hmm. um, that was hard that was really hard, and yet you know in those days the Dodgers were great we had you know it's it's not easy I mean we're running a hundred ball games and. Uh, it's just anything can happen in a three or five game series. And it, you know, Gene Tennis had the four home runs of the World Series mm-hmm. against us in, in 72. Who, who knew all this? But it was very, very, very difficult um, for us because of the level of play and the level of talent that we had. And then, of course, our pitchers in 75, 76 led the league in ERA. Uh, um, it was, uh, I don't think you ever, you ever, you know, imagine, but you know, what happens is, and, you know, you win back to back and all things are forgiven. All things are forgotten. Mm-hmm. 72. Um, you mentioned and touched on it earlier that you find out about this growth on your lung. Um, when, when you get that diagnosis, are you even thinking about your career at that point, or were you were you somewhat scared about your long term health and even your life? Oh no, no question. Yeah, I mean, uh, this spot had developed um, from the past uh, winter. I had been out to uh, play in a golf tournament, the Buck Owens Golf Tournament, and it was called the San Joaquin Valley, and that's what the fever is. It's coccidioid mycosis of some form like that. And when they uh, we took our normal physicals, and then they called me back a couple of days said, we need to take some more. So I go up, and then they said, well, we need another one. And I said, okay. And then, then they said, well, we want to do a graph x-ray. And I said, what's going on? And they said, well, we got a little shadow on your lung, and we're not sure. So we did the bronchoscopy. We did the tuberculosis, histoplasmosis tests, and everything else. And uh, in those days, uh, up to that time, they cut you from the center of your chest. They cut your bones. They separate them. They cut your nerves, your muscles. They cut you all the way around your back, up your lats, all the way to your neck. Mm. And they pry you open, and, and they, they do the surgery. My lawyer, Ruben Katz, and uh, did so much due diligence on finding somebody who was the best surgeon uh, available. And it turned out it was Lou Gonzalez from Christ Hospital. And uh, he had a had an idea to try a new surgery, a staple surgery, of being able to go in and cut you just to the back, the back underneath the armpit, again, cutting your bones and nerves and muscles, but 
uh, and being able to go in and in one motion resect the, the portion of the lung that was bad and then suit and then immediately like it's like a Luger gun you go wait wait and it's sealed airtight and uh, he wanted to try that and uh, it became the first staple staple surgery in America and as a result he gave me you know 10 more years was I the same no 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 there you know it's I judge greatness by four to six inches that's where you hit the ball out front or you hit it four to six inches closer to you and it just wasn't the same. It, it was not the same. And and uh, but I, I, you know, how can you, you know, how can you, how can you complain? I mean, we, I was able. He able was able to give me a, a longer career. I was able to win the, you know, and be in two World Series championship. And that was the greatest moment in my career. Was walking into the clubhouse in '75, and looking at 25 players that were world champions. Didn't matter what anybody did, anything did. I'm looking at Merv Rettman and Terry Crowley and Bill Plummer. I'm looking at the our pitching staff. I'm looking at the coaches. I'm looking at the trainers and the equipment men. And everybody was a world champion. And that's when you realize the greatness of what playing on a team is. Individually, you have to do your job. But that was – and then the sponsors, the owners, and the fans were all winners. And uh, – then, of course, to go back the next year and uh, win again when we proved to so many people that uh, we were the big red machine. In those World Series, you went head-to-head with Carlton Fisk and Thurman Munson. Now, again, for a lot of people in this generation and day and age where they've basically grown up with uh, interleague series, a, a regular part of baseball since the 1990s, mid-90s, uh, there was no interleague play back then. Um, and, you know, you get arguments from people in Boston, Fisk is the best catcher. People in New York, Thurman Munson's the best catcher. Was there, was there competition there for you personally, along with your team, which was more important, but for you personally to prove who's the best catcher once and for all? 76, by the way, you win the MVP of the World Series. Zero. Absolutely zero. There was nothing. I mean, it didn't matter if it was Jerry, or, you know, uh, Jerry Grody or Randy Hundley or, or uh it didn't matter. Those guys, I always, you know, whether it's Steve Yeager or Joe Ferguson, uh, all these guys I respected. And that was the last thing I was was ever competing against. The only guys I was competing against was that pitcher. Yeah. And the only guys I had to do was every hitter that came up there, I had to get out some way. And I had to do the very best. Thurman was one of the nicest and best people I ever knew. I, I, rate, I rate Fisk up there in the top two or three catchers ever. Because I and that's just the way it is. That's just the respect. And can you? Only time, only time it was any kind of a competition was when they came to bat, and I had to get them out. And we didn't get Thurman out, and Fisk hit the home run. So catchers have been involved in those two World Series pretty strongly, yeah. and uh, I had the greatest respect for them. Now, you know, in eighth grade, I read, a, I was reading books, and it says never compare yourself because there are greater and lesser people than all of us. And so what everybody else thinks about you, that, that's what's going to be there. There's going to be those that, you know, love you and people that, that don't. And that's always. And if you worry about that, you know, there's too many things that can enter into your all of the things that you do in your life. And today it's, you know, it doesn't change. I still have to do the same thing. And there's there's no special, you know, the name gets me last night, last night I'm I'm at the football game. My son wanted to go to the flag football. He had played flag football, and he wanted to see his friend play. So I'm sitting there, and next to me is sitting, you know, Tiger Woods. Wow. Tiger's son plays on the team. And uh, after the game, we had a had a wonderful talk about, you know, his situation and, you know, and how at some point, you know, you can't play up to the level that, that you want to play. And it's okay because – you you had you had all the opportunities in the world and you and you succeeded in all the things. When I had that lung surgery, I assumed that I didn't know what to assume. I said, okay, I'll be the I'll be the just go ahead and be the next president of the United States uh, if I can't play anymore. That's I was sort of a fatalist in a lot of ways. There was nothing I could do. That my everything was in the hands of my surgeon. And there would be something that I would do beyond that. I would do broadcasting. I would do something that that I could do. I had done the baseball bunch. I had done 
you know, all of these things. Well, I did the baseball bunch later on. But there wasn't anything I didn't think I still couldn't do and succeed. When you're pulling cotton for two cents a pound and combining peanuts at one or two in the morning for a dollar or two an hour, you know, you know how to work. It's all your dad's ethic of work. So there was something that I was going to be able to do, and I was going to be uh, good at it. The last three seasons of your career, um, you basically move out from behind the plate. You, you don't even catch a total of 20 games over those last three years, and, and you became primarily a corner infielder, third, first. Um, how difficult was that for you? Not difficult at all. I, my elbow was so bad. Um, my back was bad. Remember, I had that car wreck. I had five, I had five the bad discs in my back. I had two herniated discs in my neck. I had an elbow that had ulna problems that every time I I threw, I, it was like somebody stuck a knife in my elbow. Uh, I there was I I came back to the dugout. I threw out three guys in one inning. I came back with tears in my eyes because it hurt that bad. Uh, it was just the wear and tear, and that's what the doctor said, son. Nobody else would walk out of this this emergency room but you, and but you are going to pay the price. So I've had both hips replaced because of that. My knees are fine. Uh, I, I worry about my, my, you know, my psyche, my, my, my health. I, I see guys later, you know, in our time, like Gary Carter, Darren Dalton, and they develop these blastos and I worry about, uh, Alzheimer's. I worry about dementia. I worry about thinking cause I probably had seven to 10 concussions. Sure. Um, and so. You know, working with the University of Cincinnati with uh, with uh, Dr. Ellis and Joe, and we we developed a paper for uh, neurovisual stuff for the you know, the American Hospital Institute. And so I'm I'm trying, and I, and when I come to Cincinnati, I'll go see you know these two doctors. Joe Clark is a professor at the University of Cincinnati. I'll go see uh, a doctor that will just evaluate. Just to say, you're doing great. You're fine. I do puzzles. I do everything to try to keep my my brain active. And if that's not enough, then I I have an 11 year old, 15 year old that uh, definitely keep my brain active. So uh, oh. I I knew that I would either play or I wouldn't. Uh, there was there was nothing I could do about it if I wasn't physically capable of playing. I, you want to play at the same level? It wasn't the same level, but I was good enough to play. I still think one of the coolest moments in any player's career in any sport was the night of September the 17th, 1983, your final year. They have Johnny Bench night, sellout crowd, 53,000, 54,000 at Old Riverfront Stadium. Uh, and you hit your 389th and final career home run, most of all time by any catcher. Um, and I've asked other athletes uh, this question, Johnny, uh, about a particular moment. Is there something that when you remember that home run, low line drive, barely clears a wall out in left field, is there, is there one thing you thought of? Is there one picture in your mind? Is there one memory from that moment in time for Johnny Bench? Well, yeah, I think it was on a Thursday night. I can't be for sure. I know it was a day, a night, a day, a weekday. And uh, so actually I was, I, it was me. It was my night. It was my night. And I, I was anxious. I was like, uh, how's the crowd looking? You know, so I'm hoping there'd be a nice crowd. They <laughs> no, said, I should know, say I there was. 40,000. Well, when I walk out on that red carpet and there's 50 some thousand people there and, and it's, that was the only time I ever felt like I was, it was me. It was about me. I never thought it was about me at any other time. And the response that I had from those fans and the response that I had from my teammates and the respect I got from the Astros, when I hit that home run, it was, it was pandemonium. It was how could you ever ask for anything? No more? doubt about it. No doubt. You about can't, you know, to fail is just, you know, it would have been, okay, I got a couple of hits, but to think I hit a home run and, and the most, and the mo and thing I remember so much about it was Joe Nuxall's call mm -hmm. and he had tears in his eyes. You could hear it. You could hear the tears. You could hear it. And when he came down to interview me, but 
when you looked up in the stands and you saw people crying, it was like, you know, grandfathers telling their sons and sons telling their sons. And I mean, it was like, it was so magical. It didn't matter. It was like everybody that was there got what they wanted. Yep. And, and the, the, the Astros clapping, um, how could I mean? How could you ask for anything more than that? I mean, it was it was unbelievable. It it really was. Playing your entire career for one team, um, did did you ever wish or ever think about going somewhere else? No, no. I, in fact, the the when I went into Dick Wagner's office uh, to tell him that I was going to retire. The first thing he said was, do you want to go to St. Louis? <laughs> Whitey Herzog had wanted me to come over and play. And I said, no, I'm I'm right here where I should be. I've got fifth third. I've got the broadcasting ahead of me. Uh, no, I'm I'm good. I, I And I'm not Johnny Bench anymore. So it was not something that I could accept uh, and, and put before. Uh, anybody else, whether I, and I, and Cincinnati was my place. It was, it was, I had so many friends and so many associates and business opportunities, but uh, no, I I never, I never really wanted to go. When I've been around you at at many, many events, and and especially when they have the Reds Hall of Fame induction every other year, but, but they're different events, whether it's Reds Fest or whatever the case may be, and all of your former teammates and specifically the pitchers that you work with, I find the whole conversation just standing back and listening and watching and, and listening to the interaction uh, between you and this guy, Gary Nolan or Freddie Norman or Jim Maloney or whoever it might be. There's a trust. There, there, there's an incredible sincerity to that bond all these years later. Um, can you just can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's it, it really is amazing how much Johnny as great a player as you were, and you were the best player in the game, as great a player as you were, those pitchers trusted you with every fiber in their body before they threw any pitch they threw. Well, I, you know, I tell young, young catchers, and I, and I said, learn your pitchers. There are three types of pitchers. There's those that you psychologically, you learn to go out and say, hi, I'm Johnny Emery Catcher. We're in Cincinnati. I, then there's the ones you learn all about their the mechanics and there's the ones that you know you have to get more out of and you actually push them harder and i i don't think there was ever a time that i ever had anything but the best for that guy out there to get him through that and to make him feel like he was the best and that he could do it and that he was he was capable of doing things and and the, the trust that we had together Oh, they shook me off. There were guys that shook me off. There's guys, you know, that that couldn't shake me off because I really was in command back there of what their stuff was and how I could get them through everything, and I could make them uh, get a, a get a win in a game. But I I've always felt that you know I tried to think I made them feel that they were the far more important than I ever was. I, I wanted them to know, and I and I every time I see them, I have a, a love for them. I have a respect for them. Uh, you know, there was there were guys out there that, you know, such great athletes, just tremendous human beings. And uh, I will defend them. I would defend them to to whatever end that they they wanted or needed. And I was just there for them. And I and I I think it's always the the way it was with every player on the team because you know the only way you win is that you get the best out of everybody and that you instill confidence or you respect them to the point that they understand that they are uh, they are appreciated and that you really had the best for them in mind every time you went out there so uh, I I you know I still I talk to so many of the guys still uh, uh Hume is here, and Raleigh Eastwick's been down here, and my, Will McEnany lives here, and I was talking to Lacoste the other day, and <laughs> Freddie, and it's just, you know, it's just guys that, and you carry on the conversation, but you have interest in them, interest in them, mm-hmm. and and they are more important 
than I'll ever be, I think. But, 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 you know, one of the reasons you were able to do that, uh, Johnny, is because, you know, growing up, I'm assuming, in Oklahoma, I mean, I think this is a pretty safe assumption growing up anywhere back in those days. And, and then when you start your professional career uh, as a teenager at 17, you know, you were allowed to call the game. Um, I really wonder your thoughts on catchers that have been coming up now for the better part of not just one generation, but two generations, where, you know, starting in, 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 in Little League and especially in high school, really in college, and now with, with, with sabermetrics and everything in Major League Baseball, the catchers no longer are able to, quote, unquote, call a game. You agree with that? Yeah, and I, but I, you have to remember, Tom. I was a pitcher. I didn't catch, and you know, in my in high school, I pitched the, I pitched the the county tournament, the by district, the district, the regional, the by the regional, and then I pitched the state finals. I pitched, so I understood how to pitch. I understood location. I understood how to get a hitter out. What you had to do, so it transferred over. I mean, we had a kid that would catch but wouldn't play third, so I had to play third. And then when I played American Legion baseball, I was only fifteen. And these guys were 17 and 18 in another town, and they were already the catchers. And so I, I didn't catch there either. I played third. I pitched. I played first. So I, I can still remember in 1966, we were in Clearwater with a combined team of the Astros Reds in the Instructional League, and Dave Bristol made the comment that I called a good game. And I... I don't, I'd never had a pitch called. I never had a manager. And then you got some pitchers. I think Roger Craig was the first one to really be known for calling a game. And he lost 20 games. So, I, you know, I don't know how. Now they got sabermetrics. I'm sitting here watching the draft combine. Tommy, I, I probably wouldn't have been signed. I mean, sure. you know, they timed me with a calendar. I don't know where, you know. They, I remember when the Reds had tryouts, and I went to watch them. And they had them throw. Then they had them run. And if they did well at that, they let them hit. I'm like, isn't this backwards? Yeah, for can sure. We, can we get guys that can hit first? And now with analytics and saber, and so everybody up there who has who's never played the game, I think, in so many ways, has ever not ever played, not even played the game. Doesn't understand some some of the things. I understand percentages and everything else. But Sparky used to call us in and say, "Hey, uh, how about uh, how about Tom? Would he fit on our team?" I said, "Yeah." And he, Pete, Joe, Tony, and myself, he'd call us in individually or as a group. And then he'd call us in and say, "What about Jack?" No, because Jack didn't fit our team. He didn't become the bench player we needed, or he didn't fit into the the, the mentality of our club. I remember they drafted, they, they signed a couple of guys that we didn't have any say so in, or didn't even, they weren't Rocky somebody or whatever. And Rocky, first thing he did, he was blowing bubbles and putting them on the back of the hats. He was giving hot foots. And I mean, it was like, hey, we don't do that here. That's not what we're here for. And he was gone in a couple of weeks, but it was like, no, um, there's a level that, 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 that you have to maintain. These guys allowed me the opportunity. I probably made more pitching changes than Sparky. I, I just look in the dugout that looked just at him and he knew it. And he'd, he'd wait, a, wait a couple of pitches. Then he'd go to the phone or I'd come in off the field walk into the dugout, walk past him and says, get somebody up. Because I understood the level of, of what this pitcher had at that particular time. I knew who was coming up next. And Sparky always had he, one thing he wanted. He didn't want a starting pitcher to ever fail. He didn't, he didn't want him to be the loser mm-hmm. in that game. He wanted him, if he pitched well, he wanted him maybe a no decision, but he wasn't going to lose because he gave him five, six innings, whatever it was. And I always appreciated that about Sparky. And we had, we had guys out of the bullpen. We, we were, they were somewhat maligned our pitching staff, but we had guys that could do it. And, and I remember when Clay Carroll came over, Clay Carroll was, we called him Sonny Sunoco when he came over uh, from the Braves, <laughs> because every time he came in, he just put gasoline on the fire. He just lit the rally up. Everybody just bombed him. 
And we built the confidence in Clay Carroll. <clears throat> and we brought him to a level. Pedro Rabone, sure. guys that we made made heroes in so many ways. We, we gave them the confidence and the belief that they could do it. And it, it just turned all of those guys around. I, and that was the most enjoyable thing I think I've ever ever been involved with, is seeing those guys uh, uh, be so successful and, and the pride they had in themselves. You lost a very dear friend in Joe Morgan um, in the last number of months. Um, you know, for those of us that had a chance to know him, and you knew him on a totally different level than, 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 than 99.9% of the people out there, uh, what an incredible guy in so many ways. He was above and beyond that. I mean, he's the best ball player I ever saw. And uh, we had such respect for each other. I mean, it was almost mental telepathy and, and the things that, you know, we believed and respected each other so much. And we talked so much in the winter. We talked so much. And, uh, you know, Joe was the guy that, you know, I was the one who talking to the pitcher except for Joe. When Joe came in to talk to him, uh, the pitcher, I didn't go out there a lot of times because it just, he was telling what he, what the pitcher needed to hear. And um, I, I just, you know, unbelievable respect, uh, appreciation. Uh, and then after the game, the, what he did after the game in business and the vice chairman of the Hall of Fame and to do broadcasting the way he did, and he had insight, you know, and he had the right idea. He'd come to the game about 15 minutes before the game started and walk in the booth. Well, aren't you prepared? I, I remember I did a World Series, and they, they have, we have a pre-meeting, and we're sitting at this table with 30 people and everything else. All right, this is how the game's going to run, and I made, the, I made the mistake of saying, but they haven't thrown a pitch yet. Well, it didn't matter. This is about, you know, oh, yeah. what the production was. Right. And so I, I – I, I, you look at a game and you're still, you know, wondering uh, about all the things that go. But Joe made it to where, you know, you were listening and, you know, you think it, he says it, you see he says it, you think it. I mean, it's it was such a great, great opportunity for me. And then, you know, the 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 day that I got the call on Friday from his uh, agent lawyer and uh, he said, uh, Joe's not going to make it. And uh he may not make it through the night, but Joe wanted you to write his uh, write out his uh, about about all of this, and it was just you know just took my breath away. I mean, I just sucked it in. I mean, I, I it was so sad. It was so you know so many tears, and uh, so I had a couple of days to prepare. You know, and and it was the next day, and then then it got to Sunday, and then we lost Joe, and it was. Uh, what do you say about, you know, it's easy to say something about the best player you saw, sure. uh, best friend you had, uh, and the greatest respect you had for a, for a human being. So it was easy to, to, to put it down, and it was somewhat got me prepared for all of it. But it's been a tough year. I mean, we've we've lost 10 Hall of Famers, and I lost my buddy Pat Berry, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and other friends that I, I grew up with playing golf in Cincinnati. So it's been a hard year. It, it really has. And uh, we're, you know, the warranty runs out. That's, you know, it's inevitable. I, I made it through 1972 when I had that lung. I made it through that. I made it through the bus wreck when our high school team had a had a bus wreck and two, play, two of our players were killed. So I've, uh, I've seen, I've been through involved in a lot of things. I want to ask you a little bit about, J.B., your relationship with Pete Rose. Um, it's not always been great. In fact, there were times where it probably wasn't very good at all. Um, do, do, do you and he, at, at this point, is the relationship good? Um, could you both have maybe handled things a little bit different when it wasn't so good? Uh, you know, I, look, I got I got uh, buried in Cincinnati when I said Pete shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I was I was the evil villain, and uh, people came down on me. Broadcasters came out down on me. You know, the guys at WLW were down on me. Everybody was just you know, and and it was me who was holding all these things back. Um, I mean, even your dad, 
um, you know, and it was, do we, you know, what we've had to live through with all of this is the fact that he put us through it, Joe and Tony and myself and mm-hmm. anybody else. I mean, we're still talking about it. And it's, it, that was 1989. We're still talking about it. Yep. And, you know, I went through the year of my Hall of Fame induction saying, congratulations, Johnny, on being in the Hall of Fame. What about Pete? And uh, we were partners in business. We were, he, he gave me an opportunity to be the MVP. He was on base all the time. Uh, we had bowling alleys. We had car dealerships. We had the things. And, you know, it's just like I think the, the, the part about being uh, what he did, to, unfortunately, to himself, which I, you know, the thing I, that was the hardest to do was to go through that, that he did it to himself mm-hmm. when he had ways of doing it a lot better. And then he didn't. And so, uh, no, we don't have a relationship now. And, uh, and of course, you can say that about a lot of people. I'm sure there's, there's people that uh, don't get along with other people. Sure. And it, it doesn't affect my life because, you know, except we're still talking about it for, for whatever reason. Your oldest son is named Bobby Binger Bench. Binger, we've talked about already, your hometown. Bobby, if this is true, named basically after two very dear friends of yours, uh, the legendary Bob Hope and the legendary Bobby Knight. I want to ask, ask you about Bobby Knight. Um, in the climate we live in today, JB, there is no way Bob Knight gets a chance to coach in the Big Ten at Indiana I'm not sure he'd coach in the Mid-American Conference. I don't know if he'd coach junior college basketball in the environment we live in. And, and, and I don't think that's a good thing uh, in, in any form or fashion. I'm curious your thoughts because, you know, look, he'll have his critics out there. Everybody does. But at the end of the day, 99.9% of the kids that came to play basketball for Bob Knight uh, would run through a wall for the guy. But, 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 but it's really a shame, in my opinion. You agree with that? Well, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby once said, "A critic is a legless man who teaches running." <laughs> right, right. And Bobby, you know, I talked to him the other day, and you know, he's not old, not, not great, but but we have great conversations. I talk to him about every couple, two or three weeks. And uh, Bobby Knight, no, because you don't get participation trophies anymore, and we don't have our kids, and then the parents are the ones. That's saying they're not getting a fair deal, and the kids saying, "Oh, I'm not. Well, I'm not going to put up with all this." And oh, you can't yell at them, and you can't, you know, you can't criticize them because they're very sensitive kids. And you know, and I, I kept thinking during all the during the riots and all the demonstrations and everything else, I thought about the old adage: uh, "Do you know where your kids are?" Mm-hmm. Well, who cares? You know, obviously, uh, you know, they're my kids. They're showing their, you know, but they do. Are they really showing? So. It was kind of like, yeah, I understand what you're saying about Bobby, but Bobby would have could have adjusted some. Bobby was Bobby, and that's that's you know why uh, everybody had the respect for him when they had the deal at uh, Bloomington not too long ago, and all of those all of those uh, uh, players showed up. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's just say that Sparky Sparky Anderson left Cincinnati. Why? Because they started asking some of the young players, well, he didn't communicate with us. I'm sorry. Just get your butt out there and do your job. Mm -hmm. That's all. Earn it. Well, no, I don't have to earn it. I'm supposed to be paid because I'm, you know, I made it up here and I do that. I'm just not getting the real shot. And they become so uh, pompous about it. The pomposity of it all is the fact that they really think that they're uh, far better. And, And they should be playing before, you know. Somebody should have been catching or somebody should have been pitching or somebody. I'm not getting the fair shake. And then you get agents who tell tell the player that they're underappreciated, they're underpaid, they need to watch themselves. If your arm's got a little twins, just back off. Don't play. No, I, I, I think we, we pamper all of our kids too mm-hmm. much. And uh, we, we, you know, everybody's got to play. Everybody's got to be a, you know, you don't have to earn the right anymore. All you have to do is just sign up. I mentioned the name Bob Hope, and um, you know, back in the in the late '60s, '70s, '80s, longer than that for him, uh, he he was the king. I mean, he, he was the guy, and of course, he put so much of his time and energy and money 
into uh, the military and the the men and women who are serving in the military. Uh, We mentioned earlier, you know, you were in the reserves. Your father was in the military. Uh, So obviously that means a great deal to you. You actually toured with Bob Hope and went to Vietnam. How did that experience change you, make you, impact you, any of the above? Well, I mean, I had never been away for Christmas, and I asked that mom and dad after they called me and said they want me to go to Vietnam and, you know, around the world in 12 days. And and uh, I said, well, absolutely, you got to go. And so, you know, and so I go to Burbank, and I start doing rehearsals with Bob. And Bob, Bob from that time, from the very beginning, was trying to write lines for me and our little skits that we did so that I would be great or I would be funny. And we, we rehearsed and we worked on it on the planes and he'd come in with a new line. Hey, I got a new line. I want you to try. Okay. And, you know, we sat together on that plane for the whole trip. I was right next to him. And, uh, I, he called me every week afterwards. We talked every week. He had a new word, a new joke, or he had some new line and we would just talk. And he came, I'm sitting here looking in my office and at the Johnny bench roast and here's Bob Hope. Mm-hmm. Bob Hope. Yeah, Bob. Is that my roast in Cincinnati? Right. Who the hell am I? I mean, you know, but it was just, he was so cool. And, you know, you know, the USO trips made him. I went to Desert Storm with him in 1990. I went with him. And uh, I've got that up on my wall as well. Uh, but it was, uh, and Dolores Hope and I played gin for 12 hours, and I'm not a gin player. And she almost won. She were, we were playing for Bobby at that time because she wanted my child. So I lost him for about 90% of the trip. <laughs> and then I, I won him back in the last two hours. Good. So I, it was, and they climbed up on the back of those half tracks. And the, But what joy he brought to all of those people. I think the greatest thing was, and then in 1971, I did that. In 1971, I was invited to play in the Bob Hope Tournament. And... Uh, and so the last day on Saturday, I'm putting on the green for getting ready for the tee-off time next after Bob and uh, Spear Wagner and Willie Mays. They were in a, they were in a group with a, with a pro. And I'm playing with Arnold Palmer. And what I had learned from Bob and just the way he was, he wanted me to come over and be on the tee with him while they teed off. And he introduced me to the to all the people. And... I mean, I'm 600 people, 661 people in Binger, and I'm standing there in the middle of this thing, you know, with all of these people, and he's giving me accolades and everything else. And then I'm playing with Arnold Palmer, and I played that 18 holes. And for 18 holes, Arnold Palmer said hi to people. He he winked at them. He waved at them. He gave the thumbs up. And we talked the entire time. We walked the fairways together. And it was, we laughed and we had so much fun, but it it made me aware of the fact even more. I think a kid from Oklahoma, I already had that, but he made it how important it was to make somebody feel good or make them get that little bit of notice that made them, you know, well, they'll always, they would always remember. And, so that's the way I, you know, I learned about my life. I learned about Arnold. I learned about, about Bob. And, and it made me even more aware of, of people. And you try to be as good as you can to people. And if those, aren't, if those people aren't good to you, well, just put them out of the way. Just, you know, I don't have time. You know, I don't have time. The three words in life is get over it. Get over it. And uh, you're going to survive. The people I surround myself with now, I've got a group of guys here uh, down here in Florida, and I got a three-star retired general. I got the former CFO of Florida. I got the president of the Spartan Nash. I've got, I've, but then I have the guy who's the the inspector for for the gardens. I have I have uh, the guy who's a lobbyist. I have my buddies, I, and it's just we are we have a rip-roaring fun time. We have breakfast three or four times a week, and we laugh. And my buddy Hollis. We're just we just have the time of our lives, and and I'm I'm lucky 
but I've been able to maintain relationships and uh, and be a part of so many great things and and that have happened in my life. And when people start talking about, well, didn't you go? Uh, yeah, I did. You know, but I don't. You know, yeah, I was President Nixon. I was I was at the state dinner with President Ford in the White House, and then I was. You know, I'm with uh, with Governor DeSantis the other day, and then I'm with I play golf with uh, President Trump, and I and I and it just you know, gosh. But then I go back from Bingo, Oklahoma, and I go to the community center and eat eat with the folks. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we have a community center there, and we people can come by and locals for four 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 fifty, and and uh, out of towners for five fifty, and you know, I make sure that they have enough money to to continue that going on and. I just have a hell of a life. The number one priority in Johnny Bench's life um, have been his kids. And and here you are now uh, in your early 70s. You're raising two boys, Justin and Joshua, as a single dad. What's your day like? Say during school, and I mean, take away the COVID thing and all that. But I mean, the boys are in school. You're getting up every morning. What what is it like to be Johnny Bench uh, during the school year in 2021? Well, I'm up at 5:50. I uh, start preparing their uh, lunch boxes with the COVID year because they had to, and they don't always like to eat in the cafeteria. So I prepare their lunches. Then I'm getting the breakfast ready, whether it be omelets or uh, waffles or bacon. And Josh loves his bacon, and then the yogurt or whatever cereal. So I go get them at 6:25. All the other uniforms are laid out. They get dressed, come down. Uh, you know, they eat. They uh, make sure your teeth is brushed. You get your hair combed in the car, drop them off at quarter to eight. And then I either meet the guys for breakfast or I come back and stop off at the grocery store. And then I'm going to uh, uh, do the laundry because I've got to keep the uniforms up to date. I've got to get uh, their older whatever, then they have, if they have a school activity or if they have a ball game or soccer, if they, you know, whatever they're doing, I have to make sure that I'm, I'm prepared for that. And we have the week on week off. Their mother is in town here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when, uh, a lot of times when I'm going to breakfast, I'll just say, Hey, I can pick the boys up and take them to school because she's going to work out or whatever afterwards. So that's easy. So I see them two or three times that week. And, uh, and then, of course, they they always uh, they always have forgotten something. So, uh, uh, Lord over- knows, I know all about it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So you understand. I mean, it's the typical. I'm just, you know, I think in so many ways, just the typical father, and in in so many ways. And then, uh, and Bobby and I are working on something. We have the college catcher of the year coming up mm-hmm. uh, for softball and baseball, and then we have the the high school catchers of the year for Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, and, and uh, West Virginia. So that we have that presentation. And then down here, I have a, my neighbors down the street. Uh, they run a school for uh, at-risk kids. They're adults, really, 14 to 22. And so I have a little golf tournament, raise money for, for them. You know, they're foster kids who can't really read. Uh, uh, and, you know, but get them jobs, the intern. And uh, I don't play golf anymore. So then Josh has a, a school function he's going to, or he wants to go to a football game last night. And he, you know, and Justin's at tennis. So I had, you know, I fixed him up and ready, and I had dropped him off at 10, and then I'll pick him up at 1. And then I've got, a, you know, the normal things around the house. And then usually in the afternoons, we're in the pool for about 45 minutes to an hour so I can exercise. I do the, the foam weights in the pool. Mm-hmm. And then it's time to fix dinner, um, whatever, you know, maybe steak, it may be pasta, it may be uh, uh, smoothies, just, you know, and I just, you know, make my runs to Costco and Publix and, <laughs> and, uh, and then turn around and do another load of laundry. It, do, do the other parents... You know, I mean, your sons are what, 15 and 12, 15 and 11? 11, 15. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do, do the other parents, when you go to these different things, I mean, I mean, not all of them know who Johnny Bench is, right? No, no, you got to be 50-something to have been a follower. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, you know, you know, and uh, these kids and stuff, it's, uh, no, 
I mean, they're not. And, and you know, today nobody's impressed with anybody unless That's you're, right. you know, some right. some singer or artist or whatever yeah. or some Hollywood critic. Is that a tough stage, Johnny, to go through where where you used to walk in anywhere and everybody in the room knew who were you, who you were and now it's not necessarily like that all the time? No, it never was like that. I avoided those things because I – if there was a situation where it was, two of the referees came up after the football game and says, you were my childhood hero. I, I can't tell you. I guess you saw me staring at you. And I said, well, not really. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I thought I had a mole on my cheek or something. I, I, you know, I am, I'm no different. I don't think in so many ways because, you know, people think, and I said, you know, they don't, you don't get on the plane faster. You don't give you tickets to go anywhere. They, I mean, you're stand, you come to go to the movies. They say, wait a minute, Johnny's here. Uh, Johnny, come up here. Stand up. You're, no, there's nothing. And a restaurant, can it can it help a little bit if you call and say, I, uh, I'd i like to see if I can get dinner tonight? He says, well, oh, Johnny. But And then down here, for whatever reason, see, I lived in Palm Springs for a long time, and, you know, those people were all ate up with themselves. And down here, you know, you'd be eating dinner, and the manager comes. It's nice to have you here. If you ever need anything, if I can help you or something, here's a card. You know, and before it was like, you know, there. Some people are just so impressed with who they are, sure. and I don't have that problem. I'm I'm really good with myself, and and I don't ask anything because I don't want to be responsible for turning it around and being obligated to somebody else. I don't want to be obligated, but I'll do anything I can for somebody else as best I can. I mean, we've got. The scholarship fund, which I'm so proud of, we've got 80 some kids on scholarship every year. We've got uh, we got hope for the warriors. We do the children's charity classic. I go to the the I, I'm co-host of a, a tournament with Bobby Nichols that we raised a million three. In the last three years, we've raised four and a half million dollars for the uh, abused women and children and backpacks. So you know I can be of help to some, and I'll try to do that as I can. Last thing I want to ask you about, and, you know, look, we've had uh, some incredible guests on this show. Uh, Some of them have been married for 50 years. Some of them have been married for two years. And some of them have been married three times, and they have three different sets of kids. You were with Bobby when he was growing up, uh, and your former wife, Laura, uh, had Bobby together. Now, as a parent, the second go-round, if you had advice, not necessarily for somebody who's going through it for a second time, but, but look, with age comes a lot of wisdom. Uh, making mistakes <laughs> learns a lot of wisdom. You know, you, you learn so much. Would you have gotten married again? Well, no much? kidding. Absolutely. I hear you. I hear yeah. And I think and every Sammy man says Wynette's that. On, Sammy Wynette said, keep on loving until you get it right. So you failed. So I'm, I'm failed at baseball. I failed at a lot of things when I didn't do it. But So, I mean, it's like, uh, do you have wisdom? Now, I think sometimes, you know, you pick the wrong one or they they become disenchanted or it seems to be over 50% of the people are sure. getting divorced and whatever. And, and it's, it's sad to see that, but you know, they're young or they have to and then they, they need more. Their wants are different. Mm-hmm. I think so many people before, you know, there was before in the old days, you had a, a, a wife that was home usually and she was raising the kids and you were out working. Then everybody all of a sudden needed two cars and they needed two jobs to survive. And they start doing, and they become, you know, interested in other things, and they become drifting apart and everything else. The, the, you know, you can try as hard as you can. Sometimes it's the school that is the teachers that are putting things into their minds and into their heads. I mean, they come back with, you know, you can't eat this because yep. this does this, and here's what we're doing in the ecology, which are learning great things. And it's like, uh, no, I, I, I don't think. All I know is you give as much love and direction as you can. Uh, you become a, you know, um, I think in so many ways, a parent that is disciplined. Um, I uh, I don't have to give a lot of it out, but I'm not afraid to. Uh, I'm not afraid to correct them when they're wrong. And we've become closer and closer and closer. And they can rely on me and depend on me. I think that's the one thing of dependability. But I think we have to watch what our, our kids are doing, who they're with, what they're learning, and how much you can protect them. Sometimes we become too protective, but I'd rather be overly protective in a lot of ways because I want my kids to 
to know right from wrong and responsibility. And I want them to have fun in their lives. And do you want them to be a better athlete? Yeah. Do you want them to be a better student? Yeah. They do well. And, uh, and when it comes time to have a little heart to heart talk, you have your talk. But, uh, you, I think, I think so many things are around the people that I'm, that I have, I'm friends with and the type of people they are, I think is very, very uh, impressionable on those kids Mm -hmm. is they find out really good people, good, solid people and know the difference. This morning, Justin was running down the street just to loosen up a little bit. And he said, there was a car that was pulled up in the driveway. And he said, that's strange. I don't like that. And he kept on going. I mean, it's the awareness that you teach them. Can you at all times? Well, probably not, but uh, you do the best you can. JB, this has been uh, uh, fabulous. I thank you so much for your your time, your generosity of your time, and and having a chance to talk about many, many, many things. Uh, You know, you've talked about it already. You've had uh, just an incredible life, and I think you start to go back and and look at the things that you did on the field, and I had the the, the blessing of watching you play virtually every day from the time – we moved into town and, 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 uh, and the back-to-back World Series championships, you've given so much to so many, not just as an athlete, but as a man uh, and, and, and helping those less fortunate. So I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Well, I have to do, I have to say this. I talked to the general this morning and he's been the head of the uh, strategic air command. He's been on the joint chiefs of staff. He's flown B one bombers and everything else. And I said, I was doing a, a, a podcast with you this morning. He said, how's he doing? Tell him that I like him and tell him I think he got a bad deal. And sometimes, you know, we in life have made mistakes and uh, we have so many things outside entities that, that step into it instead of somebody stepping up and saying, you know, this is, we're not going to go for this. You're, you, you made a mistake. Okay. You paid for it. Get over it and let's get on with it. The talent is still there for you and, and uh, to listen to you every like today and the professionalism that you have. And, uh, hey, who hasn't said something? I mean, you know, and done something in their lives. But it, it's ridiculous that, that it's still out there and it's still not uh, being rectified. No. And, uh, of course, you can take the it anywhere you want to, so you'll be all right. It's <laughs> exactly right. JB, thanks so much for the time. All the best. God You're bless welcome. you, my friend. Good man, Johnny Bench. Uh, not a perfect man. A good man. All right, we thank Dave Armbruster, our producer-engineer. That's Jid. That's who he was referring to. And we'll look forward to catching up with you again next week. You're dialed in. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.